For scripture reading this evening, we turn to Daniel chapter 8, take up again our series in Daniel. We'll read the whole of the chapter, Daniel 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beasts might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with anger against him, and smote the ram, and broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down, and a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long? shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And he said unto me, unto two thousand and three hundred days, 
Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And it came to pass, when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then, behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulai, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. But he touched me and set me upright. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. The ram which thou sawest, having Two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time, of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people, and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. The text for the sermon this evening is this entire chapter. By way of beginning, we should take note that even as is brought out in the passage we read, there is a close relationship between this vision in chapter 8 and the previous vision in chapter 7. We noted earlier that even the scriptures recognize this by reversing the chronological order of chapter 6 and 7, placing 7 next to 8 deliberately because these visions go together. And that's why Daniel himself brings up the first vision in the very first verse of chapter 8. There is a relationship in that there is some repetition. 
we see that in the previous vision as well as this vision, there are references to the same kingdoms, kings and events. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, but especially here, Persia, the Medes and Persians, and Greece. This repetition is the Holy Spirit's way of emphasizing the seriousness of the subject matter. That that which is being presented here in two visions is repeated so that the church sits up and takes notice because the subject matter itself affects the church, is a threat to the church, a threat of peace, a threat of deceit, a threat of destruction, and the church must be prepared. On the other hand, there are also clear differences. There are omissions in this vision from the previous vision, and then there is greater detail given to other parts of the vision in chapter 8. These, they're this vision that we consider really a vision of two parts, as Daniel makes clear, is both prophetic and apocryphal. The vision speaks of things that will occur, will occur in future history, that will occur at the end of Israel's own captivity in Babylon, will occur just prior to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and will also occur just before the second and final coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they profess, or they prophesy, not simply of future events, but those events as they are related especially to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the return of the people to Babylon and his first coming then in his nativity and then in his final coming at the end of time. These visions are given, therefore, to instruct, to warn, and to comfort the church of our Lord Jesus Christ in every age. These visions indeed gave Israel in Babylon hope for their future deliverance and gave them also comfort that even though there would be a restoration in Palestine, that they were to understand there would be troubles and afflictions there too, but the Lord would sustain them. These visions gave hope to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ prior to his own coming, especially in the dark, dark centuries between the Testaments. And the same is true for us. These visions are here for us and to give us instruction, warning, and comfort. The center of the vision is a little great horn, a little great horn that itself destroys, but also itself is destroyed. And we consider that 
this evening, the destruction of the little great horn. The destruction of the little great horn, we notice in the first place, his mighty power. In the second place, his fatal flaw or weakness. And then finally, the present significance of this. At the heart and center of this vision is a little great horn. That's how it's described as both little but also great, and a horn that grows out of a he-goat, a wild he-goat. When one looks at the vision and the emphasis of the vision, the emphasis is upon the mighty power of that little great horn. That which is great about him is his power, and then the use of that power to destroy. This is the obvious and troubling feature of the vision. It is especially that little great horn and his power, and then the destructive use of that power that troubles Daniel. Daniel is, of course, astonished at the whole vision and wonders at it, but takes particular note of that feature of the vision. It is that which caused him to faint and to be sick for days, verse 27. The emphasis upon the power of this little great horn and the destructive use of that power is emphasized a number of ways. First of all, by the continued reference to horns. Not only are there mighty beasts that are portrayed in the vision, but they have horns. And horns in Scripture always represent the power of certain beasts. Not only that, but this one particular horn grows from the head of an exceedingly powerful goat with two horns. And we read that that beast comes quickly from the west. And then he runs with ferocious power upon another very, very powerful beast, a ram. A ram who has conquered a huge territory to the north, the east, the west, and the south. And this goat with his horns meets him and destroys him, smites him, we read, so that he has no more power, so that that ram is cast to the ground and he stamps on him and none could help. And then we read that ram with his horns or that goat with his horns becomes even more powerful. The idea is he absorbs the power of the ram that he destroyed, adding to his own considerable power. Then repeatedly, the passage, the vision, describes that power, and especially one feature of that power, as we've already noted, that it's gained by defeating greater powers. 
That power develops and it grows through warfare and through struggle. He defeats a more powerful ram. And then we read about that little bighorn on that victorious goat that he grows from one of four horns that replace a broken horn on that goat. And we read that he comes from the greatest of those horns. Verse 8. Then we're told in verses 9 and 10, as if we didn't get the point, that twice he waxes exceedingly great. And then in verse 24, the greatness of that power and the rise of that power is summarized. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, that is, amazingly, astonishingly, and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty. That's all about his power. But it's not just that power, that rise to power from a little horn to a great horn on a goat that defeats a ram. But it is the use of that power and the gift of that power over two seemingly invincible groups. What astounds the prophet Daniel, what makes him sit up and take notice, what causes him to faint and then be sick for days, is we read that this little great horn is given power over heaven and over the church. We read in verse 10, he's given power even over the host of heaven so that stars fall. And he's given power over the prince of the heavenly host. The prince of the heavenly host. Then we read that he's given power over the pleasant land of that prince. We read that he casts down the house of that heavenly prince in the pleasant land. And he removes the daily sacrifice in the house or temple of that prince. And he replaces it with an abomination that makes desolate. That is, he places within the temple, in the place of the daily sacrifice, something else that makes it impossible to worship the prince in his own house. And finally we read in verse 24, not simply that he shall destroy the mighty, but the mighty and holy people. These are references not simply to earthly powers and kingdoms, but something more of a spiritual nature over hosts of heaven. That is, hosts that God has given power that have a certain rule and authority over men. It's describing here his power especially 
over the church, over his church in the Old Testament, and as we will see, over the church in the New Testament. And then there's this. There are two particularly troubling features of his power, that he uses his power in connection with and by which the idea is he casts down hosts from heaven and has power over the holy people. And that is, we read, his deceitfulness and peace. We read in the first place, in verse 24, by his policy he shall cause craft to prosper. Literally, that reads, by cunningness, by being cunning, his deceitfulness shall be successful, very successful. That's what his craft prospering means. By cunningness, his deceitfulness will be very, very prosperous and successful. Secondly, we read this, that after he has conquered kingdoms and nations, the means by which he especially destroys the pleasant land is peace. Peace. Literally, we read, by a life of ease and prosperity, he conquers the pleasant land. Notice that. War, 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 and then peace. And it's in peace that he destroys the holy people. When the prophet wonders, the Lord sends the angel Gabriel to explain the vision and does that by identifying certain features of the vision so that it can be understood and known by the people of God. And the idea is successively, successively, especially as history proceeds. In the first place, the rough goat from which that little great horn grows is identified in verse 21 as the first great king of Greece. And we know from history that that first great king of Greece that is being described here is Alexander the Great. In the vision, it's pointed out very clearly that he defeats a ram with two horns, one greater than the other. And we're told by the angel Gabriel that this is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The combining of those two kingdoms with the kingdom of Persia being the greater and stronger horn. And we know from history who it is that defeats those kingdoms. Alexander the Great is born in the year 356 of Philip II, king of Macedonia, the kingdom of Macedonia and Greece. He is tutored until the age of 16 by the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle. At the age of 20, in 336, he succeeds his father who is assassinated. 
and he's made general of the Greek armies and considered a military genius. After only two years, he gathers an army and invades the Persians and defeats the great kingdom of the Medes and Persians in only two battles. The first is at Issus, near the city of Antioch, in the year 333, where he is outnumbered two to one. The second occurs only two years later, near the present-day city of Mosul, Iraq, where he is outnumbered ten to one by a great army, including an army of elephants. When he defeats them, he then goes on to expand his power by destroying great cities and nations outside of the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. In a short amount of time, he conquers the supposedly unconquerable city of Tyre. He takes the city of Gaza. He massacres all the men and he enslaves the women, thus fulfilling a number of prophecies in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ezekiel. He then conquers the great nation of Egypt, and he continues onward. In Egypt, he founds the city of Alexandria, which would become home of the world's greatest library. From there he moves on to the city of Babylon, conquers it, conquers Susa, where Daniel even had his visions, and Persepolis. And that's not enough. He then goes on to invade Afghanistan and conquer it, Pakistan and conquer it, and India. He turns back only when his army, sick of fighting, mutinies and returns back to Persia, which he has made his home. And after 12 years, he dies. Twelve, in his 12th year as king, at the age of 32, he dies of either a disease or being poisoned. And he's buried in Alexandria in a honey-filled coffin that later on the great Caesars, Augustus, and others will go visit. But that's only the goat. That goat has four horns that come up out of it. And that too is exactly what happens in history. Alexander the Great dies without an heir. And so his kingdom is divided into four parts, each part being given to a general, and those parts each exist as an old semi-independent kingdom. There is the kingdom of Egypt known as the Ptolemaic kingdom after its general Ptolemy. Then there is the Seleucid kingdom which governs Mesopotamia and Asia, and Asia the Attilid kingdom that governs Asia Minor, and then finally the Antagonid kingdom 
of Macedonia and Greece. And we're told this little great horn springs out of one of those horns. This little horn is not identified. We're told that it happens later on, after these four kingdoms near their end, and we can identify again that little great horn to a particular king that existed in history. The eighth ruler of the Seleucid dynasty was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphany or Antiochus IV. He rules for nine years from 175 to 164 BC, 150 years after the death of Alexander the Great, that goat. And we can identify him from the vision itself. Not only can we identify him from secular history, especially Jewish history, which knew well of him and identified him as this little great horn, but he fits the description of the vision. We read in verse 24, he is in the first place mighty, but not by his own power. And that's true. The kingdom over which he rules, the Seleucids, are vassals already by that time of Rome. They no longer exist as their own independent power, but part of the Roman Empire, that is, the fourth beast that we read about in chapter 7. And also this Antiochus Epiphanes, as he's known, comes to power by murdering his brother and another king, which partially fulfills also the fact that we read he magnifies himself against the prince of the host of heaven and casts some to the ground. He comes to power by murdering and defeating all rivals and rulers to keep his power. And even more than that, he claims to be God. It is he who gives himself that name, Epiphanes, which means God is manifest. He took that name because he saw himself as God. He had that name inscribed on his coins. We read, he waxes exceeding strong toward the south and the east and the pleasant land. This king is not content with his own power north of the kingdom of Israel, the Seleucid power but he invades Egypt. He captures Alexandria from the Ptolemies, Ptolemy VI. And he makes religious and political war against the Jews in Palestine. About his deceitful policy, that has reference to his deliberate attempt to replace Jewish culture and Jewish religion, that is, Jewish laws, according to Moses, with Greek religion and Greek culture. That is his deliberate policy. Deliberately, he replaces the high priest with a profane political hack. The Jews revolt 
as a result of that, while Antiochus is down in Egypt, so he returns. 80,000 Jews are killed and enslaved because of this revolt. He outlaws circumcision. He outlaws all the sacrifices in the temple. And most significantly, he replaces the altar of Jehovah God with an altar to Zeus, the abomination that makes desolate. And there is further revolt and bloodshed. His reign abruptly comes to an end when he's attacked by a rival king and dies during a campaign in 164 AD, cause unknown. In all, his persecution of the Jewish people lasts approximately 2,300 days, or six and a half years, exactly as predicted in verse 14. And yet, we ought to be able to see, as the church has also seen, that there is no way that this one man, Antiochus Epiphanes, can be the perfect fulfillment of the little great horn of chapter 8. That should be evident. It should be evident that this man, in the first place, himself cannot fulfill this vision. Number one, from the type itself. The man I mentioned is probably one maybe you've never heard of. He's a relatively obscure and insignificant man who pales in comparison even to the great goat, Alexander, or the Roman Caesars. And then there is the vision itself. Simply look at what's missing from the previous vision. That's the Spirit's way of saying there's more here. There are things also that are not fulfilled. Gabriel says very clearly that he comes at the end of time, verse 19, and he comes against the holy people, which are references literally to the end of time when Christ returns and God's holy church, not simply the nation of Israel. If that weren't enough, Jesus himself is decisive on this issue when he teaches his discourse on the end of time in Matthew 24, verse 14, or 15 rather, and Mark 13, verse 14. There he references the very abomination of desolation that is spoken of in this passage as the transgression of desolation. Jesus himself references, and in his own day, which is considerably after Antiochus Epiphanes, he says of the people, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel in the holy place, then you are to flee. And explains why. Because there is a persecution coming like as the world has never seen. A persecution so severe and a war so great that time itself must be shortened, he says, for the very elect's sake. So what's going on? And the answer is the Holy Spirit 
is further describing what he spoke about in chapter 7, verses 21, 3, and 25. I'll read those. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came. And in verse 43, 23, Then he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And he shall speak, verse 25, great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, a times, and a dividing time. What we have in verse 8 is a further description of his rise to power and his origins out of the Western world powers that emerge out of the Roman Empire, describing further also his purpose and his methods, that his purpose is to destroy the church using his power over the nations and over peoples, further describing the fact that he is a profane man who claims to be God and uses culture, peace, and prosperity to wear out the church and lure the church from a holy life with God to a life that is against God. <coughs> this is the one who will be called the man of sin, the one who is called the Antichrist, who lives especially and rules, especially just before our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is responsible for what the Scriptures call the great apostasy, the final falling away, who opposes and exalts himself above God, who as God sits in the temple of God, showing that he is God. And what we're learning here also is what the New Testament Scriptures confirm, that this is also a spirit that exists in the world and finally becomes manifest in this one man. This is the one who is identified in Revelation as the great beast whom the whole world worships, who speaks great blasphemies against God and his people, who makes war with the saints and even overcomes them, who comes to power through a second beast who deceives the earth with great signs and wonders. But this great horn himself is destroyed and destroyed because it has a fatal weakness. That's evident from the vision itself, as well as its historical fulfillment in the Old Testament and the New Testament Scriptures. We highlight just a few things. First of all, notice that this little horn represents a mere man, and that though he be great, he is little. This man, for all his might and all his power, is little in comparison to all of God's providence in the world. Little in comparison to the diseases and afflictions and miseries with which God afflicts mankind because of sin. 
His days are short and numbered. It's indicated even by the 2300 days prophesied in the passage. And how even in the historical fulfillment that came true, Alexander quickly goes and passes. And so does this man in his historical fulfillment of Antiochus. The days of his kingdom must end, and must end because he is little. He cannot deliver on the peace and prosperity that he promises. He cannot bring about the salvation that he pretends to bring. More importantly, he is little in comparison to God and his Christ, whom he opposes. Oh, he has great might and power, but it is not unlimited. He's limited in the power and might as given to human beings and to the human race. He may have power to cast down some, so that he said to cast stars to the ground, but only some, not all of them, as our Lord Jesus Christ can. He may exalt himself against the prince of princes, but not defeat him. He may destroy and deceive many, even many among the holy people, but not all. His might and his power is derived, his might and his power is limited by the almighty, omnipotent power of God, especially as he gives that power and executes that power through the risen and descended Jesus Christ. That's evident when throughout the passage as well as chapter 7 we reminded that this power is not his own, that this power waxes, that is, it's not natural, but it develops, and frequently we are told it is power that is given him. This is especially brought out in the New Testament in Thessalonians 2, where we read that this great but little horn is destroyed simply by the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. That is, destroyed by the witness of his word, God's word, and the authority of God and the power of God as it is revealed through the breath that is the Holy Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice also that in the text, he stands up against the prince of princes, but we read, is broken without hand. That is, without a man's hand, without man's involvement. Of course, because he has control over the kingdom of man. So Christ comes. God comes. And without any apparent physical means or explanation, God simply takes his life as it was given. Not only that, but this is a horn that is found on a beast that is a goat. That is, is merely a beast. 
a creature that God has made and a creature that is the outstanding picture in Scripture of the reprobate. No matter how great and how powerful is his kingdom, it is a kingdom of the reprobate. It is a kingdom of ungodly men ruled by an ungodly man who opposes the one true God. He is little. Oh, he has mighty power. But he comes, as we read again in verse 24, not in his own power. And it's a power derived not simply from God or from fear or from brute force, but also a power that is derived from cooperation and coalition with other sinful, ungodly, wicked men. That's his weakness. He's dependent upon the men over which he rules. And his kingdom over which he rules is fragile and weak because it is subject to every sin and vice of ungodly man without Christ. To its greed and to its ambition and to its lust. Remember, that too was found in that vision of Nebuchadnezzar. The whole great edifice of the Antichrist rests on feet of iron and miry clay. This will be a man who rules over men who will be judged by God their Creator, the one who gave them that power and called them to use it in His service to His glory and His honor. Men who are without excuse and without justification and without hope because they reject God's Christ his Savior from sin and from death. Fatal weakness is that he claims the power and glory for himself that belongs to God. He is a thief. He uses the power and the glory that God has given to offend and blaspheme God. And God will not stand for it. Besides that, he destroys the church, which is described here as the house of God. He destroys the covenant people with whom he lives and that he has made his friend. That is his fatal weakness and fall. What's the significance of all this? There are many things that we could point to in this regard, some we have raised already, but I'm going to especially this evening point the great significance of this passage in our continuing controversy with much of the Reformed church world regarding the heresy of common grace. The error of common grace concerns the relationship of the church in this world to the world itself, or as it's commonly framed, to worldly culture, which supposedly is a reference to our earthly physical life without reference to religion. There is really no such thing. The doctrine of common grace proposes that worldly culture, worldly life, therefore the kingdoms and the life of the world is regulated and develops 
under a non-saving grace from God that operates in the hearts of wicked, ungodly, even reprobate men. And this operation of God through this non-saving grace has this power, as all grace must. It has the power to make men not as wicked as they otherwise would be. And number two, it enables men to do works that are pleasing to God, and that is morally pleasing. God approves of them. This, this understanding of common grace, namely that common grace, a non-saving love of God, regulates the development of worldly life and culture, then becomes the basis for the church to cooperate and even approve of the ungodly world and to work with that world and labor especially with that world to, in their words, Christianize it. And by Christianize it, they mean to create certain laws and values and institutions in politics and art and in government that somehow outwardly reflect the law of God. It is also upon this basis that the church, under the influence of this error, suppose that the world will become less and less sinful and hostile to God. There are objections, of course, to such a notion. First of all, it's utterly impossible and utterly foolish. In the first place, there is no such grace of God toward the ungodly. The Bible teaches there is only the wrath of God revealed to the ungodly. And the wrath of God is in their house. Besides that, there are no such works in man that are pleasing to God, but only that which is sinful. That which is good is only that which Christ and His Spirit produces. And there is no such Spirit of Christ in the ungodly. Besides that, the ungodly will never cooperate to do that which they oppose, that is, to Christianize their own culture. They oppose God, and they oppose His Christ, and will never cooperate with anything that would compromise that. That, of course, is the law of God. The end result of such foolishness is never that the church Christianizes the world, that is, turns it into some somewhat outwardly moral place that upholds the law of God. And history has shown this to be true. The great endeavor of the churches under the influence of common grace has not been what they prophesied would happen, but rather what has happened 
is what the scriptures have shown will happen. The church becomes unchristianized. That is, it becomes worldly. This vision proves the folly and impossibility of such an endeavor. You see, that goat and that little horn represent not only military and political power, but political and military power of an anti-Christian kingdom, of the world outside of the church that develops not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament shows the development of a spirit that is always present in the world and shows clearly that it is anti-Christian at its core. It is anti-Christian in its culture, in its lifestyle, in its purpose, and in its goals. Every earthly historian knows the importance of conquering the world by Alexander the Great. What was it? It was the spread of Greek culture and its ungodly character is evident because it's inseparable from the purpose and craft of that goat and the little horn of that goat. How is that culture used? How is that power used in the vision? To stand against God, His Prince, and the church. <clears throat> Furthermore, this anti-Christian culture of the goat and the little horn stand in the service of the development of the Antichrist himself. The Greek culture was a means that Antiochus used to deceive and lure the church away, whether by peace or threat of war and destruction from the holiness of God. This is what the Scriptures say. This is what the Scriptures teach. It is the world and life in the world and the life of the church in the world. Even the Father, or the so-called Father of Common Grace, had to admit this, Abraham Kuyper. Amazingly, after all his writing about common grace and how wonderful it was and what it would enable the church to do, that is to cooperate with the world in the sphere of politics and government, to Christianize the world, admitted that that culture of the world produces the Antichrist. And he knew that because the Bible tells us so. So practically, this vision shows us the culture of this world and the world power for what it really is. Its power is not of some common grace of God, but it is the power of the spirit of the Antichrist that occurs by God's providence, under God's control. It is the development of the spirit of sin, the development of the spirit of greed and of lust and of covetousness. And the aim and the purpose of this is not Christian. It is not of love of God and love of the neighbor. Oh, it pretends to be that. It pretends to be that. It is amazing how many people 
are willing to forsake the truth, even the truth about common grace, in particular grace, and think it doesn't really matter. It's not that important. May even point out all sorts of errors and flaws in the church as an excuse to receive that doctrine or fool themselves into thinking that they can live under such preaching. There ought to be no such excuse or thought anymore. It is all too obvious. Ask yourself, what has happened to the churches and the schools of common grace? Have they Christianized the world? Have they influenced the great institutions and society of our world in a way that even outwardly is according to the law of God? Not at all. Instead, what we have is the schools, Christian schools now promoting the grossest wickedness against the law of God under the name love. The spirit of Antichrist has been at war. The spirit of the Antichrist has, by peace and deceit, conquered many. Let us not be blind, beloved. Does theology matter? Does the truth matter? Or will you be deceived in time of peace? The message here is a warning, and it is a message of fear not, little flock. Oh, God will indeed give such power, allows such power in the world. He does that for his own purposes and his own reason, even in grace toward the church. He does that to show that the church is essentially spiritual, not physical. It is heavenly, not worldly. And that's exactly why it cannot be destroyed, even if the body, the church visible, is killed. Isn't that what he shows in time and history with the martyrs? Oh, there were martyrs killed. Their bodies destroyed. But it wasn't the end, was it? because all those martyrs were essentially spiritual beings. Thus it is also with the church. God gives this power to such a man for such destructive purposes to just show the depravity of man, not his improvement under common grace, but his depravity against God in its full development to make man worthy of the destruction of all of the human race and the world. Besides that, he is God. And he shows this by this very vision. Although terrible, God gave this for our comfort, for the comfort of the church way back then. And does it not prove he is God? And so let's respond this evening as Daniel did. Get up from our fear, get over our sickness, and go and be about the king's business. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for this vision, this vision 
by which we are kept from being deceived, whereby we are not lured away in time of peace, where we are kept from the spirit of the Antichrist to live as a holy people separate, as a holy people separate unto Thee, our God, to whom we are consecrated in covenant love. And, O Lord, strengthen us then for our calling and our work to labor in the great kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ to His honor and glory and be a witness to Thee in this world of Thy amazing love toward us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.